Again, if you will, turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter number 12 today. Hebrews chapter number 12. We've been in this passage a little while. I've already got to what I wanted to get to there in verse number 3. But I keep finding other things. That's the way the Word of God is. It's alive. And it's uh, sharp. It's powerful. Uh, We're just very thankful that God has uh, given us His Word. And it is remarkable the more we get into it, the more we see how deep it is. Uh, How we unfold one thing and then there's something else. There's more there. Always more. Uh, it, it never ceases to amaze me that I read a passage that I've read my entire life and, and then come to it again and open it up and read, read it again and see something there that I didn't see before. And that's, that's the wonder of this depth of God's Word. It is an eternal Word and it, is, it has all depth to it. Uh, but we come here to chapter 12. And we were particularly looking there in the first four verses of this passage and Last Sunday uh, we talked from the uh, uh, concerning the the chastening of the Lord during Sunday school, and we saw that there beginning in verse number five on down through verse number fifteen, as Paul describes here this this work of the Lord in our lives uh, that he he chastens his children, he does not leave us to our own devices. Uh, we ourselves can, can uh, very easily uh, get lax in our service to the Lord. We can very easily get cumbered down by the things of this world and take our eyes off of Him as He tells us to do, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, run the race that is set before us. We can very easily stop running and we can very easily take our eyes off of the Lord and have them fixed elsewhere too often on self. And, and it's so easy for us to do that. And that being... Uh, such a reality for us. We have here the Paul describing to us God's chasing, uh, God's directing in our lives, His correction that He brings to us. The times that that He corrects, the times that He scolds, the times that He has to spank us. But he, he always, His people, it is a promise for His people. And in fact, not only is it a promise for His people, but rather it is an assurance that we are His people in the fact that we've experienced the chastening of the Lord. Paul says, if you've not experienced the Lord's chastening, if you don't know what that is to be chastened of Him, to, to, to have that correction from Him, he says, then you don't belong to Him. You're not one of His. Uh, so this is an assurance to us that we are His children, this chastening of the Lord. I want us to look today at verse 14 and 15, these two verses particularly. Uh, as Paul, he, he finishes up this, this thought concerning the chastening of the Lord. And he says here in verse 14, he says, Follow peace with all men and holiness. Peace and holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. If you don't have His peace, you don't have no place before Him. If you don't have His holiness, 
You don't have any place before. Without which, no man shall see the Lord. Follow, he says, these things with all men. Follow peace. Follow holiness. And he says in verse 15, looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled. So after Paul instructs here of the chastening of the Lord on His people, he doesn't chasten, doesn't chasten, doesn't correct the wicked. Rather, it is His people that He chastens. It is His people that He corrects. He leaves the wicked to to themselves. He leaves them to their own devices. Example is even given here. Uh, of Esau, the profane person that was one who God left to himself, left to his own devices, with looking diligently lest any man fail of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness spring up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled. Here Paul encourages us to encourage and strengthen one another. Especially knowing the the chastening of the Lord when we are chastened, even though it is uh, an assurance for us that we are the children of God, the chastening is not always comfortable. (laughs) Or else it's not chastening. Chastening, The chastening that the Lord brings on us is, is not easy. It's hard when we have to endure it. It's it's weighty upon our souls when He's bringing that correction. We, We have all the emotions that we go through because of that chastening, our, our own our own shame, our own guilt of ourselves that, that we were in such a state, or maybe even we're we're going through the chastening, we're trying to figure out, Lord, what what's going on? What did I do? And indeed, we don't even know the depths of our own hearts, the depths of our own wickedness. David said, Reveal in me, Lord, show me what wicked way lies in me. And so, so this chastening of the Lord can be heavy on us. It can be hard for us to, to bear up underneath. And so Paul's encouraging us here to encourage one another when we see one that's going through these troubled times. Now we don't know necessarily that it's something that is that something they've done. We don't know that it's the chastening of the Lord on them. It may be Him allowing a trial to come into their lives, not for the purpose of chastening, but for the purpose of building up their faith. Not every struggle we go through, not every trial that we endure, is God spanking us. Quite a few of them are, but not every one. He allows things to come in our lives. He allows trials to come our way. He allows these things to come in in order to strengthen our faith, to build us up in Him, to to direct our eyes on Him that we might learn more how to trust Him, more how to believe Him in this life. But in those times of chastening, there's that correction that's there. 
There's that correction where He's he's straightening us out. Where we are not where we ought to be. Where we're not looking where we should look. Where we are are, are walking a path that's not exactly that straight path that we should be on. And there's that chastening of the Lord. And so when we see a brother going through these particular things in his life, maybe maybe we just see the trial. Maybe we just see the, the situation that he's going through. Maybe we just see the struggle. We don't know what it is. Maybe he doesn't know what it is. Maybe he doesn't know whether it's a trial or the chastening of the Lord, but he's enduring this this trouble. He's enduring this struggle in his life. Paul says, come along and help him. Lift him up. Carry him when you can. Bear one another's burdens, as he said there in Galatians chapter 6. It says in verse 12 and verse 13, he says, wherefore lift up the hands which hang down and the feeble knees. And make straight paths for your feet, lest that which is lame be turned out of the way, but let it rather be healed. Paul says, lift up those, those feeble knees. Lift up those, those hands that hang down. Come alongside and, and encourage and lift and strengthen one another. And it may be your own knees that are feeble. It may be your own hands. They're down. Paul says, lift them up. Lift them up. Make straight paths for your feet, lest that which is lame be turned out of the way. But let it rather be healed. We're to, we're to make straight paths that free of the rocks and debris and the pitfalls of this world. We're to, we're to clear those things out of our way that we don't get stumbled up on this world, but that we continue to follow that straight path after our Lord. Running even the race that is set before us. And that's what brings us here to verse 14 and 15. Follow peace. Follow peace with all men and holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. These two, peace and holiness, cannot be separated or taken one at a time. But peace and holiness together with all men. There are some offended in this world by our holiness. That we'll not have peace with us. Yet we should still seek it with them. With holiness in the Lord Jesus. It should still be seen in us. Even even when the world would not, even when individuals would not with us, we should still strive for that peace with holiness. For without this holiness, which is the holiness of our Lord, you have no place before His throne. You have. Every single one of us have to have the holiness of Christ. Without His holiness, without His righteousness extended to us, you do not have eternal life. You must have the holiness of Christ. So follow peace, he says, with all men. And holiness. 
Verse 15, he says, Looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled. Here we are called to some self-examination in verse number 15. This is the duty of all of God's people to examine ourselves. Paul says there in 2 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse number 5, he calls them to this same examination here in this passage. He says, examine yourselves, whether ye be in the faith. Prove your own selves. Know ye not your own selves how that Christ Jesus is in you, except ye be reprobates. Examine yourself, Paul says. Examine yourself whether or not you're in the faith. We're called to examine. The reason this is so important, the reason this is the duty of of everyone to examine themselves, especially those who call themselves the children of God, is because we recognize, we understand that this is this is the determination of eternity here. But this, this, this has to do not with this event in this moment. It doesn't have to do with what happened yesterday. It's, it's not to do with the temporal. It's not to do with the here and now. But rather it's to deal with eternity. Where, where am I? Am I truly a child of God? Do I really have the faith of Christ Jesus? Do I have His righteousness? Do I have His holiness on me? Am I His child? Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter number 7. We have a solemn warning here. Matthew chapter 7, verse 13 and 14. He says, Enter ye in at the straight gate. For wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction. And many there be which go in thereat. Because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way that leadeth unto life. And listen to this. Few, few, few there be that find it. Now we see in the Scripture, especially get over there in chapter 5 of Revelation, chapter 4 and 5, as we see those things that's going on in the heavenlies there, in a multitude that's gathered around the throne of God that is without number. And we think, well, that sounds like a big crowd. That's a big crowd. But it's still few in comparison to the billions upon billions that have turned from Him and had no part with Him, denied Him, rebelled against Him, fought against Him, 
billions upon billions, even that massive number, that massive multitude that is described for us there, that's still few compared to those that have rejected him of his own creation. Few there be that find it. And then look over here in verse number 21. To me, these are the saddest verses. The saddest verses in all of the Scripture. It's a warning that the Lord gives here in this Sermon on the Mount. It's a warning that He declares here to those that are hearing Him. It's a warning that we need to pay heed to. Lest we think there's no reason for me to examine myself. He says, verse 21, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. But he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Now many will say to me, he says, in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? In thy name have cast out devils. And in thy name done many wonderful works. They're pointing to things that seemingly are in service to the Lord. They thought they were. And for me, that's the reason this is the the saddest of the Scriptures that we find. These folks are coming before the Lord expecting reward. They are expecting His presence. They are expecting eternal life. That's, That's their intention here. That's how He's describing them coming to them. And they're they're talking about, look Lord what I've done for you. They thought they were right. They thought they were okay. They thought they were where they needed to be. And he says, And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. They're prophesying. They're casting out devils. Their many wonderful works are just as Isaiah 64, 6 says. They are filthy rags before God without the righteousness of Christ Jesus. The very best that you and I can do. The the very best that it appears even the Scripture tells us to do without the righteousness of Christ, is still sin and iniquity before God. Because without His righteousness, it is not of faith. And if it is not of faith, it is displeasing to God. It's sin to Him. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. 
said, I never knew you. I believe the evidence would show I believe the evidence would show that it would only be the true born again one that is willing to examine himself to see am I in faith. Because those that fall away, those that cease to be a follower of Christ, they don't examine themselves. But rather they are burdened, become burdened down in the life of Christ or the persecutions that may come their way or the discomforts that may attend to it or they become hurt or disillusioned in their religion that they just cease to be. Which means if they cease to be, they never were. They never were. The reality is there are a great many today that claim to be the children of God. There are a great many today that claim Christ as Lord and Savior that have no idea of who He is. There are a great many today that have said, I was once a Christian. I was once a Christian. No, they weren't. They may have thought they were, but they weren't. Because once you have Christ, you don't lose Christ. <laughs> because if you have Him, it's because He come and got you. And if He's the one come and got you, He's not going to let go of you. We're in His hands, you see. And so the call here is for us to examine ourselves. This phrase that Paul uses there in verse 15, he says, Lest any man fail of the grace of God. Now that does not mean he had it and he lost it. Because that's not how grace works. It doesn't mean that. In fact, John Owen says it like this. He says, In the grace of God consists all spiritual mercies and privileges in adoption, justification, sanctification, and, and consolation. So to fail of grace is to come short of it. Not to obtain it, though we seem to be in the way thereunto. In other words, they might appear, they might be going to church, they might be listening to the preacher preach, they might be carrying their Bible, maybe they don't cuss like everybody else does, maybe they don't drink like the world does, and so outwardly everything seems like it's okay with them. Everything seems like it's just as they claim to have and to be, and yet never had God's grace. I do believe that to fail of the grace of God, as A.W. Pink says, can apply in different ways to different people. For we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. And you might say, well, I failed God's grace and a sin that we performed. But that doesn't 
lose us grace. That doesn't take from us grace. But I, I, I believe the warning here in the context is belonging to those that would call themselves Christians, maybe even members of a church that have performed religious duty as those described there in, in Matthew chapter 7. And maybe even are faithful to be at the house of God, but simply have never experienced Christ. Never had the new birth. Never never had part with that miraculous work of the grace of God in their souls. Lest any man fail of the grace of God. The context implies that one without grace will expose himself by his lack of peace and by his lack of holiness. And his root of bitterness that he goes on to describe there in verse number 15, that root of bitterness will bear itself out. Bitterness itself, very characteristic, uh, often seems to follow very closely those who are what we would call apostates of the faith. That bitterness, anger, Uh, toward what they had given up in the past, what they were holding on to in the present, the the hurts that maybe they've received from somebody in a church somewhere, whatever the case. seems like bitterness is always there, very close to one who would say, well, I used to be a Christian. You can always, that bitterness seems to always be at the root of it there, right there at the base of their situation. But the the root of bitterness here, I believe, speaks more in describing the plant that bears bitter fruit. Not the fruit of the Lord. Not the fruit of the Spirit that, that Galatians 5 and 22 describes that we are to be bearing, but rather fruit, yes, but fruit that is not the fruit of the Lord. Bitter fruit. Which alludes... Uh, to that roots being spoken of there in Deuteronomy 29, that these Hebrews that Paul is writing to would, would know very clearly, it would be something that was forefront in their mind, what the, the law stated concerning this, this idea of a root. In, in Deuteronomy 29, verse number 18, Deuteronomy 29, verse 18, The warning here is against idolatry. And idolatry being brought in among the people of God here uh, as Israel is making their journey toward the promised land and getting ready to come into the promised land here. And he tells us there in, in verse number 18 of Deuteronomy 29, he says, Lest there should be among you man or woman or family or tribe whose heart turneth away this day from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of these nations. Lest there should be among you a root that beareth gall and wormwood. 
Ruth that beareth gall and wormwood. That's those who would turn away from the God of their fathers. That would turn away from from the, the God that was leading them even now through the wilderness, bringing them into the promised land. That would turn away from Him and turn to the idols of this land that they were coming into. The warning is there. They, they'll produce fruit that's gall and wormwood. They're going to produce bitter fruit. It's exactly what they would do, by the way. The warning is given here in Deuteronomy 29. And it's exactly what they would do when they would come into the land that they would turn to these idols and turn to these gods of the land and turn from the living God. This bitter root, Paul warns us, This bitter root rising up, this bitter root producing the fruit that is produced by it, it coming forth, springing up, he says, will trouble you and thereby many be defiled. Heresy can come creeping in by some such bitter root. And many not paying attention complacent in the comforts of their lives, led away by those heresies, find themselves in ruin because of following after these false doctrines. Because the one telling you these things, the one trying to teach you these things is a good Christian man or woman. Oh, he's a good man. I, I believe what he said. I believe he's I believe he really has a heart for the Lord. That's a part of that having following peace with all men and holiness without which no man shall see. We have to be able to, to, to be a people that are discerning not only of our own hearts, but as best we can of the hearts and minds of others as well based upon the things that come out of their mouths, based upon the lives that they lead. Be diligent. Remain diligent. Beware. Beware. In in the, sorry, Revelation 3, reading this passage last night and made me think here of Revelation 3 concerning the church at Laodicea. And the description that's given of them. Now, this is one of the Lord's churches. This is not people that have failed of grace in the sense that they lost what they claim to have had. This is not someone who, this is not a group of people that, that were saying, I used to be a Christian. These people still saying, we're Christians. We're following the Lord. We're servants of God. Well, listen to the testimony that God gives of them as He writes this letter to them here. Verse 14 says, Under the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write these things, saith the Amen. The faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know thy works, but thou art neither cold nor hot. I would thou wert cold or hot. So then because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. 
Brother Jonathan may mention before, they've gotten too far from their source. They've gotten too far from their source. They were in the middle of those cold springs and those hot springs, and by the time the water gets to town, it's just lukewarm. They don't have no cold water, they don't have no hot water. The Lord says, I wish you were one or the other. Not saying He wishes they were cold spiritually, but that rather they would be closer to the source of that living water that was coming to them. That they'd be one or the other. They'd have hot water or the cold water instead of getting so far away that the only thing they have is that lukewarmness. Since it makes him sick to his stomach. He wants to spew them out of his mouth. Because of this state being too far from the source of their provision. So then because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Because thou sayest, he says, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. I don't need anything. I'm right where I need to be. I'm exactly what God would have me to be. I'm I'm right there. I use the term of Paul. I am what I am by the grace of God and never even look to see. (laughs) Are you sure? Rich, increased with goods, and have need of nothing. And then he describes truly their position before him. And knowest not that thou art wretched, and miserable, and poor, and blind, and naked. I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich, and white raiment that thou mayest be clothed and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear and anoint thine eyes with eye salve that thou mayest see as many as I love I rebuke and chasten be zealous therefore and repent that's how that root of bitterness can defile us as the children of God. It can drag us away. It can take our eyes off Lord. It can make us satisfied in ourselves and not in Him. Second Timothy 3. Second Timothy chapter number 3, verse number 1. Be diligent. Remain diligent. Beware. He says, This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come. For men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. This is verse 5, having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof from such turn away. For of this sort... Are they which creep into houses and lead captive silly women laden with sins, 
led away with diverse lusts, ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Be diligent. Be aware. At this root of bitterness not rise up and trouble you, Paul says. goes on to say there in our text in verse 16 and 17 describing Esau. He says in verse 16, Lest there be any fornicator or profane person as Esau, who for one morsel of meat sold his birthright. For ye know how that afterward... When he would have inherited the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place of repentance, though he sought it carefully with tears. And so he uses these two examples. Fornicator, profane person. Like Esau. Left to himself, by the way. Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. How did the Lord demonstrate his hate toward Esau? He left Esau to himself. Jacob, he wrestled. Jacob, he chastened. Jacob, he inflicted pain. Jacob, he was on his back and revealed to Jacob who he was. Esau, he left to himself. Esau continued on in his profanity. And though we see here, he repented. And so people say, well, there it is. He repented. Why didn't God accept that repentance? Because he wasn't repenting about his failure to God. He wasn't repenting about his sin. He was repenting because he had lost his birthright that he gave away. And he wanted it back. That's what he was repenting. That's what he was crying over. Examine yourself. Whether you be in the faith. Alistair Begg, I was listening to him this week and he he made a point. He said, we get to heaven and we're asked, why are you here? If your answer, you answer right now and you, you think in your mind right now, why am I here, why should I be allowed to enter in if your answer is in the first person? You are wrong. I did this. I did that. I prayed a prayer. I believed. I repented. I went forward. I joined the church. I, I did this. I did that. I did this. If we're pointing to I, That's the wrong answer. The answer rather should be in the third person. He. He saved me. He gave His life for me. He washed my sins for me. He redeemed me unto Himself. He gave me eternal life. He caused me to believe. He gave me faith. He did all of my salvation is of the Lord. 
What is your answer? Examine yourselves. Examine yourself, whether you be in the faith. What is your answer? What is your answer today? Looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God. Let's all stand, brother. John, you bring us a soft thing.